Hello everybody, this is our fourth sermon looking at the book Song of Songs. Today we're in the passage that begins at verse 2 of chapter 5 and goes through to verse 3 of chapter 6. And the title of this sermon is Lost and Found. There is a well-known phrase that comes to mind when reading this part of the Song of Songs. What we have in these verses is the poetic description of what happens when the honeymoon is over. When something new and exciting begins, initially all seems to go well. Everything is sweetness and light, the fulfilment of our wildest dreams. But then slowly but surely reality kicks in and challenges begin to appear. Now these difficulties do not mean that what has been started isn't good. Rather, we must now start putting a little work in to get the best out of the new phase of life we have entered. We use this phrase, when the honeymoon is over, to describe the reality of starting a new job or moving to a new area. But ultimately, of course, the phrase is derived from marriage. When the honeymoon is over describes that period in a relationship where after the initial romantic glow of the wedding, a few more of the building blocks of the relationship have to be put in place. And this really takes some effort. We have to work out the practicalities of living together, using our money, dividing up the household tasks. Some couples mistakenly enter marriage thinking that they will never have any conflict or misunderstandings in their relationship. Then when the first argument does occur, they immediately fear that their marriage is doomed to fail. Of course, that's not true at all. Every couple goes through this stage of tension. When the honeymoon is over is when the marriage vows kick in. A couple hangs in there and keeps going because that is what they have pledged before God to do. At times, it really is the covenant commitment made at the wedding that keeps the love going rather than the other way around. But most couples discover that with a little effort, they come through these early trials of relationship building far stronger than they went into them. And that is what we're going to find for the couple in our song. But before we get to the text, let's have a brief recap on where we've got to in the story so far. In the opening part of the song, a young woman fell head over heels in love. The poetry contained an eruption of sensuality as she yearned for the kiss of his lips. But that rush of emotion soon led to her feeling very vulnerable. She feared not being good enough for him. She didn't know how to approach him. Fortunately, she got some good advice from her friends and she began to feel more secure as the two lovers really got to know each other properly. In the second part of the song, the couple got betrothed, and we were delighted for them. However, yet again, this emotional high soon gave way to anxiety as they waited for their wedding day. Many a sleepless night was had as the young woman lay alone in bed. But slowly but surely, she began to see this period of engagement as good, because the couple's desire for each other was increasing all the time. In the third part of the song, we reach the sumptuous centre of the book. The couple got married and enjoyed the intimate delight of their wedding night. We saw last week how all was as it should be, and the couple were encouraged to drink in the delight of their love for one another.
In many ways, the book could have ended last week with its description of the great pleasure of sex. That really could be seen as the giddy climax that all their love was headed for. But remember that Song of Songs is in the wisdom section of the Bible. The wisdom books are down-to-earth, honest and very practical. It is then much more helpful to us that the Song of Songs goes on from the delight of the wedding night to describe how love can continue to grow even when the honeymoon is over. And it's to that which we now turn. What we have in chapter 5 of the song is another dream sequence, similar to that which the woman had in chapter 3 when she lay awake through the lonely dark nights of her engagement. Like many people, this woman's fears, which are pushed to the back of her mind through the busyness of the day, come to the surface at night, turning sweet dreams into restless nightmares. So let's see how this dream begins in verses 2 to 8. The woman has retired early to bed when her husband comes to the front door and repeatedly begs to be let in. At first he uses gentle words of endearment to draw her attention before urging her to hurry because he's damp and it's cold outside. However, despite his requests, the woman delays and makes excuses. She's got undressed. Must she really get dressed again? She's washed her feet. Must she really dirty them again on the floor? The seeming pettiness of this response makes us wonder what's going on here. Is she teasing him, playing games to make him desperate for her? Does she just fancy her own space for a while? Maybe she's making him pay for something that displeased her earlier in the day. We have to be honest and say the text does not say. This is a poem. It doesn't need to explain everything to get its point across. Rather, it's trying to evoke a scene that any married couple will recognise. I personally think she is teasing him, but in a way that masks her own subconscious hesitations. I think she wants reassurance, something to convince her again that she has done the right thing in getting married. She's challenging him here. Tell me why I should let you improve yourself to me again. Every spouse has these quivering doubts in the early days of marriage, particularly when they have just left the security of home and parents for the first time. However, sadly, the young woman's little game greatly backfires. After a long day tending his sheep, the husband is tired and greatly frustrated by her playing difficult to get. So impatiently, he thrusts his hand through the door to try and get in. As soon as he does this, the young woman realises that she's gone a bit too far. Verse 4 tells us that her heart begins to pound with love for him, so she gets up to go and open the door. However, to her great horror, by the time she gets there, her lover has disappeared. He's stormed off into the night. And verse 6 tells us that her heart sinks at this discovery. The next part of the dream is a frantic panic, a scene that only our nightmares can conjure up. She rushes out into the city to find her beloved. She looks high and low and calls out loud, but she has lost him. He is nowhere to be found. Instead, she comes across the night watchman who set about mistreating her. 
In her scantily clad attire, they take her for a prostitute, and instead of protecting or helping her, they give her a beating. It's as if in her dream she's becoming conscious that her attitude has not been right. This imagined beating is a self-imposed punishment on the mind. She feels guilty, even though really she's been misunderstood. Finally, in verse 8, as the panic is reaching its pinnacle, she turns to her friends. She urges them to help her look for him. And it's very important that if they see him, that to tell him how much she loves him. She yearns to be reconciled. Now, the response of the friends in verse 9 of the dream is very interesting. Unlike the watchmen who were quick to react without taking the time to listen, who judged, injured and gossiped rather than helping her in her need, the friends do exactly what is required. The friends listen, calm her down and then invite her to connect again with what is really true at heart. As she wobbles over her marriage, they invite her to remember the reasons for why she fell in love in the first place. How is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you so charge us? Can you see? They're coaxing her to forget the misplaced remarks and the mistaken incidents of the previous days and focus instead on what he really means to her. There really is great wisdom in their question and the sensitivity of the friends soon draws this young wife out. In verses 10 to 16, the woman launches into a description of her lover. As with his description of her back in chapter 4, this poem is full of vivid metaphor. Again, as readers, we're not to push the metaphors too far, but we quickly get to the heart of why she loves him so. Her man is beautiful. Her man is strong. Her man makes her feel stable and secure. His legs are pillars of marble. Her man speaks words of compliment and love to her. His mouth is sweetness itself. No doubt she loves nothing more than to be kissed gently by his lips. She finishes her celebration of him with a statement in verse 16. This is my beloved. This is my friend daughters of Jerusalem. In other words, this is my darling, she says. This is, this is why he is wholly desirable to me. Her dream has brought her to a moment of important revelation. Yes, she has wavered. Yes, she has had a few doubts. But deep down, she longs for the security of his presence. She realises that since their wedding, the whole of her life is suffused with his Her heart has gone out to him and she doesn't want to take it back. Rather, she wants to give herself to him more and more completely. On hearing all this, her friends seem very satisfied. They've drawn out the reasons for her love and know that she is now convinced of them for herself. So now in verse 1 of chapter 6, they offer to help her find her husband. How can we help, they ask. Which way did he go? But then suddenly, in verse 2, everything changes. It's as if the young woman jolts awake from her nightmare and makes the most pleasant of discoveries. Despite her panic, her lover is right there with her, presumably sleeping on the bed beside her. Her fears have been groundless. 
he has not left her at all. As readers, we discover that her nightmare has not been logical at all, just the hesitations and racing fears of love when the honeymoon is over. In the story, two things then take place. First of all, since her dream has reminded her of her deep desire for her husband, it is appropriate that as she awakes, there is a renewed expression of sexual love. We again read of him entering his garden, which was the language used of their wedding night at the beginning of chapter 5. There is no doubt that verse 2 of chapter 6 is physically very intimate. She moves to embrace him, feed him, to give him succour and wholeness, and at the same time he brings great satisfaction to her. This is more than just kissing and making up. As married couples will know, some of the best sex in our lives happens when there is true healing and reconciliation after an argument, or when our lovers who we thought were lost to us have been found dependable once more. This is real, this is true, we know it. We just don't often talk about these things. The second thing that takes place is the verbal reiteration of commitment. The young woman who had previously wavered and doubted echoes the great words of their betrothal. Back in chapter 2 verse 16 she had said, My beloved is mine and I am his. Now she says in verse 3 of chapter 6, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. The reversal in order just goes to accentuate that this is her reiterating the commitment to her lover in her heart, as she has been on the one on the journey of self-discovery. Our fourth passage in the Great Song of Songs finishes then with the exact same theme that the previous three have. There are many fears contained within the human mind and heart, but the way to relieving these is through the experience of steadfast commitment. That is why marriage is the culmination of love, not just sex. Marriage is what couples need, and the physical intimacy just helps to sustain it. True security comes from knowing that there is always someone there for us who has our best interests at heart. So hopefully now we have an understanding of what the beautiful poetry of this section of the song is describing. But remember, Song of Songs is not just love poetry. It is wisdom literature. It is poetry with a point to it. So what is the wisdom we're to take away from this passage for our relationships today? Well, I think it's that all our relationships will go through the cycle we find in this reading, and many times over. There'll be moments of confusion when mistakes are made. There'll be the need to confess and move back towards our lovers. And as a result, commitment will grow all the deeper. There is no doubting that the early days of marriage, when the honeymoon is over, can often be difficult. This was certainly true for Emily and I. The two individuals in the couple move at different rates and get out of sync. There is frequent miscommunication. And when that occurs over hot issues like finance and in-laws, chores around the house and sex, these miscommunications can frequently break into arguments. 
There is also the tussle between personal autonomy and dependence on our spouse, which is what is really going on in the young woman's dream. When we marry, two become one. Yet each individual still needs to be themselves, to maintain their own interests and instincts, to keep a sense of their core identity. And it takes a certain level of privacy to do this. Ultimately, we all fell in love with our spouses for who they are. We then benefit from them preserving some of their mystique, from them continuing to be the people we fell in love with. There is then a great paradox at the heart of every committed relationship. To totally morph into each other is to lose something. But to withdraw, close doors and maintain separation causes great pain. Every couple has to learn how to communicate and where to surrender. Every couple has to learn to identify what needs changing together and thereby grow together. This takes time. In fact, we're working on this for the whole of our married lives. And as human beings, we make many mistakes on the way. Every married couple will at times then need good friends. People who will take the time to listen to them rather than jump into conclusions like the watchman in the dream. People who will encourage spouses back towards each other rather than giving them reasons to pull further away. Ultimately, as we found in our passage, in every marriage there will come moments of realisation. We will know we have gone wrong. We will know we have to confess that and move back towards our lovers we will know we need to make things up. But the good news is, if our marriage is how God set out marriage to be, our lover will not have gone anywhere. They'll be there, ready, quickly to reconcile the differences and put things right. Often as we look back in our married lives, we will find that these moments of coming back together were very pleasurable and leave us stronger than we were before. In a nutshell, the wisdom of this passage is is then that you and your spouse are human. Expect them to get confused and make mistakes and expect yourself to do the same. Be ready to confess those mistakes quickly and move back towards your lover. And be committed to one another enough that you seek understanding rather than jump into conclusions that you're sensitive to your lover's fears and that you're quick to forgive just as you would want to be forgiven. This then leaves us one final thing to do in this sermon. Each week in this series, we're finishing with a key theme that we can take away whether we are married ourselves or not. A key piece of advice that will help us in the relationship we do all have with God. Last week we discovered how the Bible describes our relationship with God like a marriage. If that is true, then this week must also be very relevant to us. When we come to faith in God, it is an amazing experience. We feel the rush of the Holy Spirit. We feel on top of the world. But many of us then find ourselves going through periods where the honeymoon seems to be over. We wobble in faith, full of questions and doubts. We make mistakes, falling back again and again into bad patterns of behaviour, and we wonder whether we've been saved at all. 
We also fight for our autonomy at times. We're tempted to go our own way rather than trusting God and obeying his. Our relationship with God then grows and develops just like a marriage does. And it will continue to do so until we finally see God face to face in glory. This is why when Jesus taught us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, he included the very important line, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. When Jesus said this, he was teaching us that as believers, we will need to confess our sins quickly, regularly and openly. But as we think about this need to confess, we should also remember another story that Jesus told. The story of the prodigal son. Do you remember how the son swanned off from his family, wishing his father as good as dead and set about a period of debauched and wild living? But as time passed, he realised his mistake and his need to return home. All the way home, he rehearsed his apology. Yet on his arrival, before he had time to utter a word, his father had welcomed him, hugged him and thrown a party. The son may have moved away for a time, but the father had gone nowhere, just like the husband in Song of Songs. As Christians, we need to understand that it doesn't matter what we have said, done or thought. There's more grace in God than there is sin in us. No one is too bad or too broken for God's love. There are only those too proud to acknowledge how desperately they need it. We all need a moment of realisation like the woman had in a song. The promise of the Bible is that if we take a step towards God, if we reach out in recommitment, he will come running towards us. If we pray for forgiveness, he will forgive. He will take our sins away as far as the east is from the west. He will embrace us and we will discover that our relationship with him is stronger than ever before. This is the power of confession and God's reconciling love. This is what it means to know we were once lost, but now we have been found.